Let's turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And this morning we're going to read verse 1 to verse 10. Verse 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor. Then Judas, who had betrayed him, when he saw that Jesus was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we now turn our attention to your word and to this story recorded in in the Bible, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that you would remove all uh, earthly distractions so that we can hear from you. We pray that we would read this and meditate upon it, not as it is the words of men, but as the word of God. And we pray that you change us this morning. You would speak to us, that we would listen to you, Lord. We pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and make yourself known this morning in our midst through your word. We pray that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. In every scientific field or discipline, uh, that discipline conducts historical study that's related to that field. And they study cases pertaining to those different fields that help them understand their field and further their knowledge. It's very important that every generation generation doesn't just start from scratch, right? Could you imagine if in every scientific field they just completely started from scratch? An architect just started from scratch. He never learned the lessons of the past. For example, uh, in the medical field, doctors will study the famous case of Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig. And uh, as we all know, Lou Gehrig, well, maybe we don't all know, but Lou Gehrig was a famous baseball player who uh, was diagnosed with what's called ALS, or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And we have a friend in our midst who has ALS, Kim. And doctors will study the case of Lou Gehrig so that they can understand ALS better and seek to further their knowledge in that field. Political scientists will study men like Julius Caesar or Abraham Lincoln, and they want to understand what made these guys who they were, what made them successful, what made them failures. It's important they, we just don't start from scratch, but we learn from history. Athletes will study the greats, Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky, the great Canadian hockey player. Shout out, one for Canada. <laughs> <clears throat> 
There's also value in studying the worst as well. And so it is with the science of the soul that we need not, brothers and sisters, start from scratch. Amen? Now, a lot of people think that it's okay just to start from scratch, right? I'm not gonna, I don't care about what's been written. I don't care about what's happened in the past. I don't care about anyone in the past, examples that I might look to. It's just me and God right now, and I'm learning my way. But that's not how it is with God. There's a science of the soul, and there's historical study that we can do, and God wants us to do. For example, it's profitable for us, and we even see this in the New Testament, for us to study the life of Abraham. The Apostle Paul points us to Abraham and said, look what Abraham discovered so that you don't have to go through all this heartache and headache in order to know how to be right with God. Right? In the book of Isaiah, God says, look to Abraham and you'll understand righteousness. We can study the life of David. We can study the life of Paul. Out of the Bible, more recently, we can study the life of Martin Luther and John Bunyan and so forth. There's cases in history, if you are interested in the science of the soul and in relationship with God that you can learn from these cases. And there are, there are few more important case studies in history that pertain to the science of the soul than the horrible case of Judas Iscariot. It's one thing to study the successes and it's another thing to study the failures. We can learn much from the good examples. We can learn much from the bad examples. It's a hard thing to study the life of Judas Iscariot because it's not a happy ending. It's not a happily ever after. It's not one of those movies that you watch and at the end the music comes on and everything just feels good. In fact, with Judas Iscariot, the ending is the worst that we've ever seen. There is no worse ending than Judas Iscariot than the ending of Judas's life. Studying Judas's life immediately sobers us, doesn't it? How many of you get that sense? When you, even when we mention the name Judas Iscariot, there's sort of this eerie sobriety that follows that name. There's a fear when we think about him, the one whom Jesus said it would be better for him if he had never been born. There's an eerie fear, kind of like when you're at a very great height and you're afraid of heights. It's not all logical, but you have this fear that fills you and you get close to the edge, right? You want to withdraw from it. There's something about Judas and the revelation of the severity of God that makes us feel unsafe when we talk about him. It's a healthy fear, however, because fear, even though we feel unsafe, that's why we're afraid, is actually what makes us safe. Because when we have that sobriety and when we have that fear, we take care not to fall off the cliff. We take care and we learn from Judas not to do what he has done. Fear is a gift from God and is a good thing. Healthy fear, that is. And it's not by avoiding the subject of the wrath of God that we truly learn about God's love. Some people like to, might say, well, why do we have to study these bad cases at all? Why don't we just, why do we have to talk about the wrath of God? Why do we have to talk about hell? Why do we have to talk about guys like Judas? Can't we just talk about heaven? Can't we just talk about the love of God? Can't we just talk about all the good people as if there were any besides Jesus? It's not by avoiding these subjects that we learn the love of God and we learn how to be safe, but it's by facing them. Because the love of God is, as we've been discussing 
best seen against the backdrop of the sinfulness of man. When you realize that God is a just God, when you realize that God is a God of wrath, and that his love isn't just this indifferent niceness, which I think a lot of people think about God. They think, when they say God is love, they think God is nice. He wouldn't hurt a fly. But when you realize that he would, and when you realize that God is just, and that we are sinners and in danger of his judgment, then the truth that he loves you becomes all the more amazing. Right? When you realize that, wow, I actually deserve his wrath, I actually deserve his punishment, but he didn't want to give me what I deserved, he wanted to save me. Why? Because I was so good? No. But because he just cared for me. And so by avoiding these subjects, we actually will avoid God himself and will avoid the knowledge of his love. We're to learn from these failures of the past as well. So the question I want to ask this morning is, who is Judas Iscariot? And I don't say who was Judas Iscariot, because Judas still exists. It's not a matter of was but is. He was on earth, yes, historically, but Judas still exists like every other person who's ever lived, even though they're not here anymore. And his words and his deeds are always present with us. Who is Judas Iscariot? Some think he's a hero. That's popular these days, to think that Judas was a hero. Others think he was a villain. Here's what Mark Twain thought about Judas Iscariot. To my mind, Mark Twain said, Judas Iscariot was nothing but a low, mean, premature congressman. (laughs) That's what Mark Twain thinks. Obviously, he thinks he's a villain. And Scripture would agree with Twain that Judas was not a hero. One commentator says, Judas is the most colossal failure in all of human history. The history of the world knows no betrayal story as treacherous as this one. Go Google it. Famous betrayal stories. Judas gets number one. And yet in the scripture we find that very little details are given to us concerning Judas. What we do know about Judas in the scripture, obviously, even though it's few, is deemed sufficient by God for our instruction. What we have here, we don't need to know what his favorite food was, right? But God has given us what we need in order for us to learn from his example and from his case. Here are some things we know about Judas. His name, obviously in scripture, Judas Iscariot. In the Hebrew, ish Kiriath, meaning Judas, the man from Kiriath. Kiriath was a city in Judea. And Judas may be the only non-Galilean of Jesus' disciples. We know that Judas' father was named Simon. And no other details are given to us about Judas' past or his upbringing. He's got a very common name, Judah, Judas or Judah. He's got a very common father's name, Simon. And nothing else is known. And Because nothing else is known, it probably means he was a very ordinary individual. He wasn't extraordinary. Otherwise, probably something would have been mentioned to help us understand this man was extraordinary. And he wasn't. So we have a very ordinary man, a Jew from Kiriath in Judea. 
The next thing we know about Judas is that he was chosen by Jesus. This is the, really the first thing we know about him. He was chosen by Jesus with the other twelve to be a part of his closest disciples. Early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus prays to the Father. He comes down from a mountain. He selects 12, of his disciples, 12 people to be his disciples to give them special instruction and to, to appoint them for special service. This means that Judas was a disciple of Jesus before he was chosen to be one of the 12. See, Jesus had lots of disciples. Lots of disciples. Just when you think of the disciples of Jesus, don't just think of the twelve. They were just the ones Jesus chose to be closest to him. But he had hundreds or thousands of disciples. Obviously, Judas was impressed by Jesus like everybody else. Judas saw the miracles of Jesus, heard the teachings of Jesus. He would have said, this man teaches with authority and not like the rest of the scribes. And Judas was one of those disciples who followed Jesus around before Jesus said, you are chosen to be one of my inner twelve. Judas is not an atheist. Judas is not an agnostic. Judas is not a notorious sinner. Judas is a religious Jew intrigued by Jesus. And for this reason, he's the greatest failure of all. You see, the greatest failures of all in the eyes of God are not the irreligious, are not the atheists, are not the agnostics. The greatest failures in God's eyes are the religious. And we have much reason to beware as religious people. Don't think just because you believe in God, you're somehow right with God. Don't think just because you believe with God, you're better than those who don't believe in God. You're not. You might not be. We know that Judas became the group treasurer. Somebody had to handle the money. Judas was apparently willing to do that. Judas was the group treasurer. Judas preached. Judas performed miracles on the missions that Jesus sent the twelve disciples. Judas had first-hand knowledge of the teachings of Christ and the stories that we read in the Bible and love. First-hand knowledge. All these stories we've been studying in Matthew, guess what? Judas was there, seeing it happen. But we soon learn that this man who was so privileged to be next to Jesus for so long had a dark side. Early on, Jesus says to his twelve disciples, Didn't I choose you twelve? But one of you is a devil. What a description. That's a harsh description, isn't it? He didn't say, One of you is mean. (laughs) One of you is nasty. One of you is fill in the blank. Devil? That's a harsh description, isn't it? What would merit such a serious description as this? Because Judas outwardly looked good, right? No one suspected Judas to be a betrayer. When Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, the very night he was betrayed, no one even suspected it. He said, one of you are going to betray me, and all the disciples were troubled. Is it going to be me? They didn't say, oh, obviously, Judas, we were just waiting for Jesus to say something about it. (laughs) What would merit this description? Devil. We only have one other clue in Scripture. John chapter 12, verse 6. Late in the ministry of Jesus, this is mentioned. When Mary pours the perfume over Jesus' head that is worth 300 denarii, 
very expensive perfume, you remember. And the disciples were indignant about this. The disciples said, why this waste? Why would you take 300 days' wages and waste it on pouring it on one man? We could have sold this and given it to the poor. And all the disciples were indignant. But in John, John tells us that Judas was really the spokesman. And John tells us this, that when Judas said, why the waste? This could have been given to the poor. John fills in some blanks for us and says, it's not that Judas cared about the poor. No, he did not care about the poor. But because he, he was the one who carried the money bag and that he would take money out of the bag for himself. Here is the only other clue about G, Judas's inner condition that he didn't care about the poor and that he was a thief and a pretender and selfish and covetous. This is the only other clue, but it's a big clue, and here's why it's a big clue. It tells us so much about Judas, not only that he was selfish, not only he was covetous, not only was he a thief, not only was he a pretender, not only didn't he care about the poor, but he was all these things in the presence of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So when you read that he was a thief, don't just think he was a, don't just stop there. Judas was a thief. Judas was a thief in the presence of Jesus. Traveling around with Jesus, hearing Jesus teach, seeing Jesus' miracles, and yet all the while he was not being influenced in a positive way by the teaching of Christ. And that's the scariest thing of all. Judas had a hard heart and yet he was religious and was around Jesus. I can't think of anything more horrible than that. It's one thing to be a thief, and it's one thing to be selfish, and it's one thing to be covetous, and it's one thing to be a pretender. But when you're around the teachings and the life and the stories of Jesus, it's not the scariest when you're wholly irreligious. It's the scariest when you're seemingly wholly religious, and yet deceived and deceiving and unfeeling, and it happens all the time. This isn't just unique to Judas. This happens today all the time. What if Jesus, Judas had just confessed to Jesus? Jesus, i got a lying problem, and I'm a thief. I've been taking money out of the bag. What do you think Jesus would have done? He would have loved him. He would have forgiven him. He would have come around him. He would have helped him, right? But Judas was a hider. He was a sinner like everyone else, but he was hiding. He was afraid to be exposed. And what happens when you hide like that around Jesus? What happens when you are afraid to be exposed around Jesus? What happens when you don't come clean and confess your sin around Jesus is that you eventually begin to hate Jesus. That's what happens. The Psalms gives us some light upon the man who betrayed Jesus. In the Psalms, we have prophecies concerning the betrayer of Jesus. And what we see in the Psalms, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, is that Judas hated Jesus. Liars hate the light. And Jesus eventually became a torment to to Judas. Because Jesus is walking around talking about being honest and confessing your sins and no one is righteous and trusting God. And Judas all along is putting on this front. 
And it would have been very difficult to be around Jesus and to keep up that face. Most commentators believe it was a gradual hardening. The more light and the truth Judas was exposed to, the worse and worse he became. As the saying goes, one that Charles Spurgeon spoke, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And the teachings of Jesus to one person softened them and exposed them and brought them to the light and made them confess their sins and be forgiven and be transformed. But that same truth and that same preaching, that same person, had the opposite effect upon Judas. We have a very chilling statement by A.B. Bruce. Who was ever better circumstanced for becoming good than Judas? Yet the very influences which ought to have fostered goodness served only to provoke into activity the latent evil, evil that existed in his heart. It wasn't put in his heart by Jesus. It was exposed by being around Jesus. The big question is, why did Judas betray Jesus? And today there are various views proposed, and most of the views that are proposed today are actually trying to save Judas's reputation. It's interesting, that's trending these days. Save Judas's reputation. Here's one theory that's put forth. I call it the Brutus theory. The Brutus theory. Another famous betrayal in history was when Brutus betrayed Caesar. He was immortalized by William Shakespeare in his play Julius Caesar. And the essence of the Brutus betrayal, Brutus says in the, in the, in the famous play, it's not that I love Julius Caesar less, it's, like, it's that I love Rome more. It's not that I hated Caesar, it was that I, I loved Rome. And I saw Julius Caesar as a threat to Rome. And so I betrayed him for the good of Rome. And in this case, Brutus becomes a hero because he's saving Rome from Caesar. And so the theory goes, Judas is actually a hero because he is saving Israel from the false Messiah. At some point, Judas wakes up and says, Jesus is a phony Messiah, and we're going to, I'm going to join the Pharisees and put a stop to Jesus. Do you think that that's a true theory? First of all, there is no proof in anything in all of our sources about Judas that this is the case, that he was betraying Jesus to save Israel as a hero. But what we do have is him going to the priest and betraying Jesus for money. We have Judas experiencing guilt after he betrays Jesus. And we have the declarations of his character in the Psalms and in the Gospels that he was actually a villain. So this theory is dismissed because it doesn't account for what we do know about Judas. Second theory, which was popular actually in the uh, second century and is gaining popularity again today by people who like to dabble in history and theology but don't like to go deep in history and theology, is the Gnostic theory. The Gnostic theory comes from the, uh, the document called the Gospel of Judas. You've probably heard of the Gospel of Judas. And the Gnostic theory is that of all the disciples, only Judas actually knew the true Gospel. Of all the disciples, of all the twelve, Jesus had some special interaction with Judas that no, none of the other disciples knew. 
Judas knew the true gospel. And here was the true gospel, that the material world and your body is a bad thing that needs to be escaped from. That the way of salvation is by being delivered from your physical body and from the physical world into the glorious spiritual world. Judas was privy to this. And Jesus and Judas had worked out a plan and Judas was simply, in, was simply obeying Jesus. As the story goes in the Gospel of Judas, that Jesus told Judas to betray him so that he could die and shed his physical body. And then Judas hangs himself so that he can die and shed his physical body. Now, is this the correct theory of why Judas betrayed Jesus? No. This theory, of course, is entirely based upon Greek philosophy. We don't get it from the Bible. It's an obvious product of the story of Jesus encountering Greek philosophy and there's a hybrid that's formed. So it's not biblical, which the Bible isn't based on Greek philosophy. It doesn't account for him betraying Jesus for money. I thought the physical world was bad. (laughs) It doesn't account for his guilt. It doesn't account for his character that we know in the Psalms and in the Gospels. The third theory that's put forth to save Judas' reputation is that Judas was naive. That Judas actually believed Jesus was the Messiah. And that he was just trying to further things along. He was just saying, let's get this show on the road. I'm going to betray Jesus so that Jesus will, everything will come to a climax and Jesus will call down the angels and deliver himself and rescue Israel from the Romans. In this theory, Judas didn't actually think that Jesus would die. He just wanted to speed up the process of getting Jesus on the throne. So he was naive. He wasn't malicious. He was just foolish. But once again, we encounter the same problems that we encountered in the other, three, in the other two theories of trying to save his reputation, that there's simply no proof for this. It doesn't account for him trying to get money. It doesn't account for Jesus' words that he's a devil. It doesn't account for the character of a villain that we know in the Psalms and in the Gospels. So what then is the truth? What is the biblical reason? Why did Judas betray Jesus? And the answer is actually a combination of four things. Because Judas is a complex person. Number one, Judas betrayed Jesus because he was angry with Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, after Jesus rebukes Judas over the incident of the woman who puts perfume over Jesus' head. Why do you leave her alone? I wonder Jesus' tone of voice at that moment. As if he, in his tone of voice, when he said, leave her alone, if maybe Judas, who's already trying to hide and be pretentious, maybe felt like he was suddenly exposed, or maybe Jesus knows his true intentions. But in any case, the Gospel of Matthew tells tells us that after Jesus was rebuked by Jesus, he went out, and betrayed him. Obviously, this wasn't an isolated moment. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was a build-up of his hostility that was growing and building between him and Jesus, between the darkness and the truth, between his hypocrisy and pretension and Jesus' heart-searching truth. And Judas was at his wit's end, and this rebuke set him over the edge, and he went and betrayed Jesus because he was angry with Jesus. Secondly, 
Judas betrayed Jesus because of Satan and his influence over Judas. The Bible tells us that Satan had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. That Satan was whispering in this man's ears. He had found a candidate to betray Jesus. He had found someone who he believed would carry forth his evil desire. The betrayal of Jesus was ultimately satanic, and Judas was the tool Satan used. Judas was ripe for listening to Satan, and he put that thought into, Satan, into Judas's heart, and it took root, and then at one point, the Gospel of John tells us that Satan actually entered Judas, and he went out to betray Jesus. So he was angry with Jesus after a build-up of being with him for years. Satan entered Judas and was using him and had taken him captive by lies to do his will. Thirdly, Judas obviously didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, otherwise he wouldn't have done what he did. Judas had lost faith in Jesus. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, when Jesus was teaching his lesson on eating his flesh and drinking his blood, Jesus said that there are those who don't believe me. And John comments and says, for Jesus knew who it was who believed in him and who it was who would betray him. Judas had unbelief in his heart that Jesus was the Messiah. And of course, the last reason, which isn't the primary one, but it's certainly a major factor, Judas betrayed Jesus for money because he could get some gain As we see, he goes to the chief priest and says, what will you give me if I give him over to you? Obviously, we're not to think Judas only betrayed Jesus for money. But that was an issue. A.R. Fawcett summarizes it this way. The lost chance of 300 denarii, vindictiveness at Jesus' reproof, secret consciousness that Jesus saw through his baseness, and above all, the Lord's mention of his burying, which dispelled his ambitious hopes of sharing a messianic kingdom of power and wealth, drove Judas to his last desperate shift to clutch at 30 pieces of silver, the paltry price of a slave, and betray his Lord. There is nothing noble about the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. We're not to listen to these proposals that are trying to save Judas's reputation. Only the biblical account of why Judas betrayed Jesus accounts for the character of Judas, the money, and what the scriptures have to actually say about the betrayal. Now in verse 3 of our text, we come now to one of the most horrifying records ever written ever penned by men. And we find it to be eminently instructive for us. There's nothing more horrible than this story. Something happened when Judas saw, verse 3, that Jesus was condemned. Verse 3, Judas, when he betrayed him, when he saw that Jesus was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. When Judas saw Jesus was condemned to death by the Sanhedrin, 
his conscience dial was turned all the way up to the max. How many of you can relate to this phenomenon of the conscience, conscience dial? That before you commit a sin, it sometimes seems that your conscience dial is very low, right? It's like it doesn't even seem like a bad thing. Now, you know it's a bad thing, but it doesn't seem like it. And you go ahead and you commit this sin and you don't even have any remorse and it, nothing bothers you. But then after you've done the deed, suddenly, woo, your conscience dial gets turned up. What an interesting thing that is. The evil of what he had done dawned upon Judas. It seems like we are often blinded by our desires. That there's an object in front of us that we think is desirable, and that desirable object blinds us from considering anything else. Right? It's like you get extreme tunnel vision, and all you can see is the sinful desire. But once you get what you desired, then suddenly you're able to think more clearly, and you realize, this thing wasn't as great as I thought. And I had forgotten how evil this was. And your mind suddenly, it dawns upon your mind, the evil of what you've done. Brothers and sisters, we learn from Judas this very important truth. There will always come a time when our sins are seen for what they are. Let me say that again. There will always come a time when our sins are seen for what they are. We go through life not really realizing what our sins truly are. But it is often not until afterwards, not until we are able to see the consequences of our sin that we become troubled by them. And then when that takes place, what was before alluring suddenly becomes something revolting, right? What, what you wanted before, what seemed desirable after the deed has been done, that's the last thing in the world you wish you had done, right? That's the last thing in the world that you wish you had. You wish that you had nothing to do with that. Anyone can relate to that experience? The Greek word is metamelomai, where Judas repented. That means he took care for afterward or he regretted. And it wasn't little regret. He wasn't like, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) Ah, that stinks. His regret was so intense that he didn't care at all for the silver that he had gained, that he wished that Jesus wasn't going to die, and that he ended up committing the most desperate thing he could have done, and that is he hung himself. His regret, his guilt was so intense. One day, mark this, all the unrighteous in this world will experience this. All of them. It will not be in this time, in this life. But there's coming a day when the experience that Judas had, everyone who's not right with God will have. Everyone will have metamelomai, will have regret for what he has done, will realize the evil of all of his actions, and will have no hope. What a sobering day that day of regret will be. In verse 4, Judas confesses his sin. Actually, he confesses the truth. And in Judas's words, we have the most amazing testimony of Jesus. 
in that the betrayer, the very betrayer of Jesus himself declares that Jesus is innocent. What a testimony from a man who's got nothing to lose, who's been around with Jesus for years, who knows Jesus intimately, and who even betrayed him, finally saying, he's innocent. How do you think the Pharisees like that? <laughs> Basically, what we read here is they wanted to get as far away from Judas as possible. He was a thorn in their side now. The one who was their tool suddenly became a thorn. They essentially said, we don't care, go deal with it yourself. We believe he's guilty, we're going to get rid of him. If you're feeling like he's innocent, what's that to us? Get out of here, you're ruining our plan. You're, you're creating positive evidence that he shouldn't be condemned and we don't want to consider this. Some partners they are. Here the Pharisees show their true colors. They don't really want truth. They want Jesus dead. They don't love righteousness. They hate righteousness. Their hearts were hard too. And so Judas finds no help from these religious leaders. He sought the religious leaders' help. They were no help to a man with a guilty conscience. It's true today, by the way. Let me tell you, if you ever have a guilty conscience, you will not find any help from self-righteous religious leaders. They'll never have any help from them. They'll say, you go see to that. That's what they'll say. You go take care of it with your good deeds and repentances. and You, you go make atonement for your sins. They can't offer a word of grace because they don't know grace themselves. One day, on that day when everyone will realize they're evil, there will also be a confession from the entire world of the righteousness and the truthfulness of God. When men go to hell, they won't go kicking and screaming. When men go to hell, they'll go saying, God is just and we are are sinners. In verse 5, the precious silver coins, the price that Jesus was weighed for, Matthew Henry says they were too hot for him to hold. The coins were too hot for him to hold. He had to get rid of them. His guilt was unbearable. William Barclay says, the thing which sin desired can become the thing that a man above all would rid himself of. And in verse 5 it says, He cast down the pieces of the silver in the temple. The word cast is he flung them like some disgusting thing that he desperately wanted to get away from him. Ever had a bug on you that was really nasty? You grab it and you cast it away from you? <laughs> I think that's what it was like. What am I? Ah, these coins! My sin! In tangible form in front of me! He throws them as hard as he could to rid himself from them and sadly he finds no relief. No relief. And the dreadful end of Judas, we read in verse 5, he departs and he goes and he hangs himself. There's no happy ending here. What an awful death to die, J.C. Ryle wrote, wrote, an apostle of Christ, a former preacher of the gospel, a companion of Peter and John, commits suicide. 
and rushes into God's presence unprepared and unforgiven. What an awful death to die. Why does someone commit suicide? It's because they have no hope. A person commits suicide because they have no hope. And Judas found, and we can learn from him, that in both life and in death, there is nothing that we can do to make atonement for our own sins. Have you learned that lesson? There's nothing you can do. Throwing the coins away doesn't give you peace. Trying to reverse your sins and make restitution doesn't give you peace. And even killing yourself does not give you peace. There's nothing you can do if you are a sinner before God that can make atonement for your sins. Learn a lesson from Judas Iscariot. The sorrow of this world, the Apostle Paul says, the Apostle Paul says that there is a sorrow of this world, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And here's what the sorrow of the world is. The sorrow of the world is a sorrow that has no hope. That is the sorrow of the world. And that's why the world avoids this sorrow like the plague. Because if they actually faced the truth of their sins, they don't have any hope to deal with them. So they carry on the big lie that they're not sinners or that there's no problem. But if you actually faced your problem, you realize there's no hope. Worldly sorrow has no hope. Because worldly sorrow, the world doesn't know Christ. And because they don't know Christ, the world doesn't know the goodness and the grace of God. You don't know the goodness of the grace of God and you face the reality of your sins, you have sorrow that leads to death. Brothers and sisters, if there was no Christ, if Jesus had not come and died for our sins, there would be no salvation and we all would do the same thing as Judas if we saw our own sin clearly like he did. The reality is the sinners are as guilty as Judas but they're not as aware of their sin as he was. Their conscience dial hasn't been turned on. But if your conscience dial gets turned on and you don't know the goodness of God and you don't know the grace of God and you don't know Jesus Christ and what he's done for you and you don't know the forgiveness of sins that comes as a free gift through his grace and through his blood that was shed on the cross, then you sorrow unto death. This is the peace that we as Christians know. As Christians, it is not that we never sorrow, but it is that there is no place for despair when you know Jesus Christ and when you know the amazing goodness of God. Let me say that again. There is place for sorrow in the Christian life. There is no place for despair for us as Christians. For us who know Jesus... You don't need to ever despair when your conscience dial gets turned up, when you know that you've done a really bad sin, because you know that as deep as your sin may be, that God's grace is even deeper still. Amen? Amen? There's always hope for you. And this isn't true for just, for just Christians. There's hope for the whole world, because Jesus died for our sins. Because Jesus brings us peace with God through his blood. And if you know this, you don't need to despair. The difference between one who despairs and one who doesn't despair 
is not that one is better than the other person. It's that one knows Christ and one doesn't know Christ. And the good news about this practically for us as Christians is that before God and before one another, we can be honest about our sins knowing that there is forgiveness with God. One of the big questions people often ask is, could Judas have been forgiven? Could Judas have been forgiven? And brothers and sisters, when I consider the case of Judas, I do not see any reason why Judas could not have been forgiven if he had trusted in the grace of God. The Pharisees and the leaders of Israel were just as guilty as Judas. But they could be forgiven. We have the example of the Apostle Paul and there's other nameless ones in the Bible as well. Paul said he was the chief sinner. He didn't say I was the, almost the chief sinner. Judas was the chiefest of sinners. <laughs> right? Peter denied Christ. If we say that, well, Judas spent a lot of time with Jesus, that exacerbated his guilt. True. Peter spent even more time with Jesus. Peter was of the, of the twelve in the inner three. And on that same night, he denied Jesus as well, as we looked at last week. Judas sadly saw his sin as too great to be forgiven. And perhaps that is the greatest tragedy of all, is when any man or woman sins and they believe that their sin is too great to be forgiven. That's the greatest tragedy of all, because it's not true. What a lie from the devil. That's exactly what the devil wants us to think. I know that you've sinned in the past and it wasn't so bad, but this time you have sinned a sin that is too bad to be forgiven. You have crossed the line. You have gone beyond the reach of the love of God. God is love, but not that loving. God saves sinners, but not that bad of sinners. That is the biggest lie of the devil. And he successfully catches many in that net. And so, one of the most important things we can learn from this case study of Judas is to avoid that net, that, the de- that, that lie that the devil seeks to capture us in. Judas' sin was indeed big. In fact, this is why Judas probably has fallen the hardest of any man who ever lived and ever will live. Because Judas was around Jesus so much. Judas heard so many things firsthand. Judas had firsthand knowledge of Christ. And yet, he didn't believe. And so true it is that Judas fell harder probably than any man who ever lived or will live. But God's grace and mercy is greater. Sadly, he didn't believe in it. The saddest thing of all, there are sins that are forgivable that men are damned for. True? There are sins that are forgivable. They're not unforgivable that men are damned for because they do not come to Christ to be forgiven. They don't believe that he's willing and desirous to take them. They don't believe that his blood was shed for their sins or for that sin. But it was, and they're lost forever not because the sin couldn't have been forgiven, 
but because they didn't believe. Don't let that happen to you, dear friends. We can learn much from the horrible case of Judas. The case of Judas sobers us. It gives us a healthy fear that causes us to take precaution and be safe. It's good for us to consider his horrible case. In the case of Judas, we see a glimpse into the depth of the wickedness and the hardness of a human heart. We see that a man around Jesus who hears Jesus and knows Jesus and even gets to look upon the face of Jesus and see the compassion of Jesus, see the love of Jesus, this man, a religious man, hardens his heart in the face of that and his last state is worse than all. We learn this when we study the case of Judas. We see how sinful man can be. We see that, we see the danger of allowing anything to come between you and faith in Jesus. And one of the things that comes between us and faith in Jesus is just an unbelief that he's really forgiving. That you need to hide and keep up the face because if you let the truth be known, as if God didn't know the truth, that you'd somehow be, be lost. All along, you are lost. We see the frightening reality of guilt, the truth of guilt, because in the, right now we live in a time where most people's conscience dials are low, but in the story of Judas, in the case of Judas, we get to see the reality of guilt and the reality of divine punishment and the reality that not all men will be saved. And so we should take precaution and not think everyone will be saved. Judas wasn't. Learn a lesson from his guilt and his sin and his punishment. We see the uselessness in the case of Judas of legalistic leaders to help us when our consciences are guilty. Their advice was no good to him. We also see how sorrowing for sin and making restitution does not obtain for us the forgiveness of sins. You can be as sorry as you want to be. You can genuinely be sorry for your sins. And Judas was genuinely regretting what he had done. He was not forgiven. Sorrow does not forgive you. Sorrow can be a tool that can lead you to Christ if you know the goodness of God, as the Apostle Paul says. But sorrow without the knowledge of Christ, mere sorrow in itself, will not obtain the forgiveness of sins. We see that our only hope is in Jesus Christ and in his sacrificial death for our sins. We do not obtain forgiveness by our merits, by our sorrowing, by our restitution, but only through the death of Jesus Christ. He died for us so that we don't have to despair. He died for us so that we don't have to go to hell. He died for us so that we don't have to hang ourselves. He died for us so that we could be restored and have eternal life as a free gift, something that we don't deserve. That is the good news of the gospel. You don't deserve this. This is because of the great love of God. And we see how great the love of God is because Jesus died for the sins of the whole world and that world includes people like Judas. That's how great the love of God is. That Jesus even died for the sin of Judas and for men who betray him and deny him and blaspheme him and even murder him. 
there's even grace for them. What an amazing God. Amen? I don't know of any other like God who has grace for the worst of sinners. What an amazing love he has for his enemies. We see all this. We see the love of God in that Jesus came into the world not just to teach us and then that the betrayal was an unfortunate mistake. If you see it that way, then you'll not ever understand the love of God. The betrayal was not a mistake in the plan of God as we see in the remaining part of our section that we read, but that the betrayal was appointed by God for our salvation. When the leaders of Israel weighed that 30 pieces of silver for Judas, it was in fulfillment of a prophecy contained in the prophet Zechariah. When the leaders bought the field, they were fulfilling prophecy. Little did they realize everything was appointed by the God who had sent Christ into the world to die for our sins. God destined his son to die and everything happened exactly as God planned. Though we sin against God and value him very little, which is the essence of this prophecy when it says the price of him that was valued, in the book of Zechariah, the flavor is caught, it is, it is shown more intensely that there's some sarcasm there, the magnificent price that I was valued that God was valued by sinners at 30 pieces of silver. We treated God with contempt, and yet He loves us and wants to save us. We treat Him as nothing, and He treats us as something. We treat Him with disregard. He regards us even in our sin. We think God is not important or little in value. God saw us as important enough and valuable enough to save. What amazing love that comes from God. So in closing, brothers and sisters, do you feel guilt for your sins? Has your conscience dial been turned up or is your conscience dial uh, deceptively low? Do you have a clean conscience before God? Do you need forgiveness? Do you need truth? You can find it all here in Christ. Don't be like Judas and despair. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. This is the message that we proclaim as Christians, that there is forgiveness for the worst of sinners. And if you have a guilty conscience, it's not by sorrowing and restitution, but it's by coming to the blood of Christ and simply taking refuge in his blood by faith which has been provided for you. There's no no trespassing signs around this lake or around this river. This is all our welcome to swim. Okay. You don't have to ask God with trepidation, can I swim in your bloody river? It's for you. I created it for you. Come and swim and be forgiven. No matter how deep your sin may be, no matter how bad, God's love is deeper still. You can put your hope in him, and in your case, you will have a happy ending. Let's pray.